All right, welcome back to the Allen and Warren Report. I'm Warren Baylog, joined as always by my father, Alan Baylog. Hello, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, belated happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We're recording this on uh, Friday night. It'll be out tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, so, so we're actually on in Black Friday here uh, right now. We just we just got finished with Thanksgiving leftovers. Yeah, they were fabulous. So we're kind of full. Uh, full of pie and, and various foods and, uh, uh, feeling a little, um, I don't know. I'm kind of slow tonight. I'm, I'm not really, uh, on my game as I usually am. So guys, if, if that's the case, if it's kind of a, a sluggish, slow, uh, easygoing show, it's, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm full of, uh, Thanksgiving leftovers. No, but it was a great holiday. We had a really, really good family event and, uh, Hey, what's up? You know you're only hearing half of the show, right? And it's being indiscriminately uh, interrupted with these sales pitches because we just don't know how else to get your attention and get you over there. Uh, Our website, our podcasts are 100% listener funded. Uh, They are funded with your subscription. So if you could please do that, uh, help us out. TheRightStuff.biz slash paywall. Thanks. Seemed like everybody was celebrating um, around with NJP and a lot of good times. Couple of things actually to do with Thanksgiving, uh, real quick. The one thing, first of all, that, uh, well, you, you always tell me a story that, that you have always told me, Dad, is how, um, FDR, the Jews got FDR to move Thanksgiving up in the calendar. And where did you first hear this? Well, it's hard to find stuff with all the details now. They mention it in a general sort of way, but, uh, I first heard it from, uh, like my, my mentor that was my dad's age first turned me on to, uh, the, the JQ. And he used to listen to Father Coughlin and those guys. And I remember him telling me that Roosevelt moved Thanksgiving. It was, it was, uh, it was a tradition, uh, you know, that was started, uh, officially by Abraham Lincoln, I guess. And, uh, and then, it was business interests, they say, but he, this guy that listened to Coughlin, he said it was, it was mainly Jews. And back then, I mean, all of the big departments were the department stores then, you know, it was before online stuff and, and, uh, before malls, you had to, well, the big box retailers. Yeah. yeah and, and you, you know, Chains. every big, every city had a, a, a great big department store downtown and, and they had everything, you know, uh, in there and, and many of them were owned by Jews and, and they, there was a guy, uh, uh, Robert Homan years ago wrote an article, uh, newspaper control in America. It was all about how all the major newspapers in the United States, the main source of their revenue was from full page ads. And so many of those ads were from the big department stores that were Jewish owned. And so, you know, they, they controlled a, a lot back then. And, uh, but anyway, they, they, they put these business, Jewish business interests mainly put pressure on Roosevelt to move Thanksgiving so there'd be one more like shopping weekend, uh, before Christmas. And, and, uh, that's when this, you know, they said in the red or, you know, when you get out of uh, a business that was suffering, uh, that Christmas rush, uh, brought many of businesses up, you know, 
made them well, pro- made them profitable. That's why it's called Black Friday. Black Friday puts them in the black. It puts them in the black. Yeah, and then they then they after that the after the Christmas holiday rush they all, they went to Florida and sunned themselves on the beach. But uh, but but that's where I first heard it. And, well, it's interesting. So you heard it from someone uh, who lived in the times and heard it when it was going on, and that's your your source of information. Well. Again, you just look up FDR Thanksgiving, and it comes up under Wikipedia as Franksgiving. Uh, so apparently this was a thing. In 1939, President Franklin D. Roosevelt moved the Thanksgiving holiday one week earlier. So that's interesting. Also, World War II had already started. Moved the Thanksgiving holiday one week earlier than normal, believing that doing so would help bolster retail sales during one of the final years of the Great Depression. This led to much upheaval and protest, causing some to deride the holiday as Franksgiving. Uh, the term Franksgiving is a portmanteau of Franklin Thanksgiving, coined by Atlantic City Mayor Charles D. White in 1939. In 1941, Congress compromised by fixing Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of November. So it says, in August of 1939, Secretary of Commerce Harry Hopkins was told by a merchant that the late calendar date of Thanksgiving that year, November 30th, could possibly have an adverse effect on retail sales. At the time, it was considered bad form for retailers to display Christmas decorations or to have Christmas sales before the celebration of Thanksgiving, a phenomenon referred to as Christmas creep. See, this is the, this is the beginning of the change that we where we had holidays that had religious or, or patriotic meaning, and they just gradually got the commercial end of it. You know, you had these holidays and it was like, okay, so merchants, retailers, and notice the code words, a merchant, retailers. I mean, it, it was Jewish. And, uh, and so this is the beginning of, of the shift from, uh, having the holiday that has religious or patriotic significance and where the commercial uh, value of it, instead of being on a side with that holiday, now it becomes a dominant thing to the point of where you move it from the traditional day. And all this stuff just erodes the uh, the meaning of these things. It, it just, I mean, like now you go to Walmart and you see Christmas shit up before Halloween. Yeah, well, uh, let me just see if there's anything I can find on Frank's giving anti-Semitic. It's really uh, fascinating, and of course, it, as always, it begins with uh, it begins with um, FDR. <laughs> but yeah, this it says that uh, yeah, it was bad form for retailers to display Christmas decorations or Christmas sales before before Thanksgiving. In keeping with the custom begun by Abraham Lincoln in 1863, U.S. presidents had declared a general day of Thanksgiving to be observed on the last Thursday in November. By late August of that year, President Roosevelt decided to deviate from this custom and declare November 23rd, the second to last Thursday, as Thanksgiving that year. The plan encountered immediate opposition. Uh, yeah, critics were all kinds of critics. Um, People in New England disapproved. The short notice change of dates affected holiday plans for millions of Americans. For example, many college football teams routinely ended their seasons with rivalry games on Thanksgiving and had had them scheduled that year for the last day of November. Uh, 
A Gallup poll indicated Democrats in late 1939, Democrats favored the switch 52 to 48, while Republicans opposed it 79 to 21, and that Americans overall opposed the change 62% to 38%. Um, After announcing August 31st, 1939, that he would similarly designate November 21st, 1940, the next year, Roosevelt issued on October 31st his official proclamation calling a general day of Thanksgiving on November 23rd. Um, Anyway, uh, and then in 1941, the Commerce Department survey found no significant expansion of retail sales due to the change. (laughs) But anyway, um, then there was a joint resolution in Congress uh, designating the fourth Thursday in November of each year as Thanksgiving Day. And then... uh, yeah, they called it a day in prayer and all this. Anyway, what's funny is about the retailers um, and the idea of Jewish retailers. I, I was trying to. I, I remember in Pittsburgh uh, downtown, there's a there's a uh, giant old re- retailer uh, a department store, an old style department store, and I was trying to find the the name of it because I remember it being a Jewish name. So I googled old department store Pittsburgh. And it's funny because the first thing that came up was a thing uh, uh, positively uh, Pittsburgh, and it's not about the one that I thought of. It's a different one. As men, uh, The shopping scene of Pittsburgh's past, as mentioned above, Frank and Cedar was a department store in downtown Pittsburgh founded by Ru- uh, Jewish-Russian immigrants Isaac Cedar and Jacob Frank. That's not the one I was thinking of. Uh, the one I was thinking of was Kaufman's Department Store, and it was this huge, major uh, thing. Kaufman, Kaufman's Department Store was uh, uh, founded in 1871 by Morris Jacob Henry and Isaac Kaufman as a men's store on the south side. It moved downtown in 1877, where its clock at the corner of Fifth Avenue and Smithfield Street became a meeting place for generations of Pittsburghers. Kaufman's grew to be one of the most prominent department stores in the city and much of the first half of the 20th century, run by Edgar Kaufman. And then uh, and then right on this Google, again, I didn't search Jewish. I just searched department stores Pittsburgh. Right under that, it comes uh, the late Rosenbaum's department store. From 1868 to the late 1950s, Rosenbaum's department store was one of the many Jewish-owned storefronts. So there's three Jewish department stores. Just in Pittsburgh, uh, from that period. Well, period. in Allentown, uh, Pennsylvania, near where I was raised, the big department store was Hess's in Allentown. That was owned by Berman. Uh, you know, it, it was owned by a Jew. In fact, I was, uh, they're out of business now, but, but, uh, and they, they used to have fanta- fantastic displays there. They had great big, uh, show windows with all kind of Christmas, fantastic Christmas displays. And people would come and just window shop and just to go and walk around an apartment store, even if you weren't going to buy a lot, just to observe. They had model trains and Santa Claus would be there. And it was it was a great thing. But these these were so many of these were owned by Jews. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, it's not. I mean, without looking any further, I I feel it's safe to say that your friend and mentor uh, was absolutely right and that whoever he heard that from, if it was Cogler, Father Coglin was absolutely right, that it was Jewish retailers uh, pushing for that. And, uh, it, you know, this is, there's an article in Vox about this, too. When FDR moved Thanksgiving, the presidential power grab that tore a nation apart. 
I'm looking at the. Uh, here's how, here's an article right here. The Jewish history of department stores. Yeah, before there was Amazon, there were big box stores. Before there were big box stores, there were department stores. And before there were department stores, there were Jews. That's what it's called. So like the history of department stores. I mean, that's wild. It's like the whole, the whole, you're, you're right. American holidays are all shopping and consumer events and they weren't always. And it was transformed this way from, from really like the time of FDR. Until the American, I mean, basically a hundred years and ninety or a hundred years. Well, it's similar to what I remember Joseph Campbell, uh, on a PBS interview talking about the evolution of things and how, like, uh, I think he gave Salt Lake City, uh, for an example, how the tallest building in Salt Lake City was the Mormon tabernacle. And then decades later, it became the government buildings. They were a little taller. Than the, than the religious building. Uh, and then now today, the tallest buildings are banks and insurance to commercial businesses. So you just see this commercial creep over culture, and, and it's a Jewish creep over, you know, uh, Aryan culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's interesting because I know, uh, yeah, the the tallest uh, towers in Salt Lake City uh, used to. Now it's now it's uh, the Wells Fargo Center. <laughs> um, I think. Yeah, I remember him him making that point in relation to just it, that the tallest buildings say something about a civilization. Yeah. Uh, you know what what you put as your tallest building says something about. I know, like for instance, I know the Nazis. Hitler really did not like the idea of skyscrapers. Um, he hated the idea of skyscrapers, but they were going to build one uh, that was in Hamburg that was just going to tower over – it was going to be taller than all the other skyscrapers in the world. And it was like a Nazi skyscraper, so it was adorned with like eagles and it was done in this style. But it was supposed to be this thing so that you could – when the ships are coming into port in, in Hamburg from way far away, you would see this thing, this tower rising up. But generally speaking, they were not, they were not in favor of it. But yeah, I, uh, well, okay. So a couple more just Thanksgiving notes, uh, quickly, guys. First of all, um, you had sent me the stuff about the first Thanksgiving and about the, uh, oh, this painting of ni- 1915, the first Thanksgiving by Jean Louis Jerome Ferris, American painter, 1863 to 1930. And then there was another one after you scrolled it uh, up. Uh, here's right there. The first Thanksgiving at Plymouth, 1914, by uh, Jenny Augustus uh, Brownscombe, um, and uh, but you know, there's this there's this big thing now with the traditional the first Thanksgiving, and they're saying how it was romanticized, and and uh, and now, like, if you look through these articles that popped up, if you go back to the uh, which one do you want? Uh, just scroll, just scroll down. Uh, oh, the vicious reality. Yeah, so, some of the, the New York Times. Uh, the vicious reality behind a Thanksgiving myth. Uh, this was from 2019, and then uh, uh, celebrating Thanksgiving is a, a celebrating racist genocide uh, from the uh, Pennsylvania Capitol Star. Uh, is another one. 
your racist Charlie Brown, as Thanksgiving rolls around each November, families across America celebrate different traditions. Some look blah, blah, blah. It goes on how there's racist stuff. In, uh... Hey, you're still listening to only half the show? Get behind the paywall and get the rest of the story. Go to the rightstuff.biz slash paywall and choose the subscription model that works best for you. And don't forget, every Tuesday evening, there is an Odyssey stream where Sudden Sun will take your donations through a credit card or a debit card in exchange for a subscription. You have no idea how much content you're missing. Go to the rightstuff.biz slash paywall and let's fix that. Char- uh, Charlie Brown, because a little black kid is like, kind of sitting separate from the rest of the gang of Charlie Brown. Uh, uh, Lavaz News, Thanksgiving's racism highlights the need for change. Yeah. Uh, it, it just goes on and on. If, you know, so they're, they're trying to like the, the commercial interests destroyed or, or, or twisted the, the original meaning of it and made it more commercial. And now they're just trying to finish it off altogether. With how it's racist and it's it's romanticized and it's it's just like a really like a terrible thing, and so the only thing you'll have left is is like shopping, you know. Yeah, well, I, uh, uh, Emily and I were watching uh, over the holiday here. Uh, we were watching uh, the Searchers, John Ford's The Searchers, and. Um, which anybody who hasn't seen it, you should watch it. Um, a lot of directors think it's like the best movie, one of the best movies ever made. Um, I know Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Martin Scorsese, when they were all film students, they all loved The Searchers. The, uh, the, the, the thing is in that film, it, dep- it depicts like a race war between whites and, uh, Comanche Indians in Texas. And, uh, it kind of shows both sides. There are sympathetic Indian characters and there's a sense that what's happening to them is, um, you know, the John Wayne character is like racist against Indians and it's not portrayed in, in a good light. Um, but the Indians are also pretty scary and they do scary, terrible things in the film. And, uh, a lot of people say that, uh, the Searchers is a racist movie. There's tons of criticism saying, why, why, you know, why is this movie so hailed? It's racist against Indians and everything. Well, I, <laughs> I looked this up and I happened to be, uh, I was at my bookshelf here and I pulled off the shelf, uh, uh, The Conquest of a Continent by Madison Grant. And I was just curious about, you know, what he had to say about some of the, um, some of these areas and about the Indians. And he says something here. <laughs> and this is, I mean, I guess Thanksgiving was in it was a, uh, was an, um, occasion where, where the Indians and whites came together. But, um, as far as the Indians in general, he says this, he says, uh, <laughs> um, talks, he's talking about how the continent was empty in 1790 and the, its eastern half was buried under a mantle of forest with a coastline broken by forts and short navigable rivers across low mountain ranges we first find a vast central valley traversed for hundreds of miles by wide rivers then a belt of treeless plains covered with succulent buffalo grass next a region long called the great american desert then a range of mountains dimly known to the colonials as the stony mountains 
Beyond them, a great alkaline desert. Next, the Sierra Range. And lastly, the genial Pacific coast. The western half of the continent abounded in mineral wealth, while the central valley, the region of the virgin soil, awaited the plow. These conditions have their counterpart in Canada. Uh, he goes through and says that uh, wild game abounded, and uh, the settlers found ready food and built log cabins. Such was the continent and such the opportunity. In the following pages, we shall see what has been done with these opportunities by the British race. Then he says this, Before leaving the colonial period, it is well to call attention once more to the history of the frontier. For a hundred years and more, the frontier was beset by savages, often instigated by the French in Canada. The Indians killed and tortured the lonely settlers and burned their log cabins. This desultory warfare cost the English many hundreds, if not thousands, of lives along the frontiers of New England as well as of Pennsylvania and Virginia. The Indians, found by English settlers on their arrival in America, were probably, as to many of their tribes, the most formidable fighting men of any native race encountered by the whites. Not only were they redoubtable warriors in their own surroundings, but they were beyond question the cruelest of mankind. Wow. He says, the Assyrians of all ancient peoples were reputed to be the most fiendishly cruel, but bad as they were, they did not compare with the American Indian. Again, this is a thought that is not really, uh, this is not something that's thought or pondered. Okay. This I now people are going to say Madison Grant. Oh, he's an old racist, but, but, and then we're that way with each other, right? One tribe against another yeah. before the whites even got here. But I mean, that's a bold statement. Yeah. They were beyond question, the cruelest of mankind. The Assyrians of all ancient peoples were reputed to be the most fiendishly cruel, but bad as they were, they did not compare with the American Indian. The details of the torture of prisoners taken in open warfare are too revolting to describe. These tortures were carried out by the squaws while the bucks sat around and laughed at the agony of their victims. There is nothing like it in history in any part of the world. And the result was that the aboriginal Indians were regarded as ravening wolves or worse and deprived of all sympathy while the whites stole their lands and killed their game. No one knows who... No, no one who knew the true nature of the Indian felt any regret that they were driven off their hunting grounds. This attitude was found wherever whites came in conflict with them and explains why they were, were scarcely regarded as human beings. Uh, and then he does say um, that um, this led to the way the frontier expanded. It, it's actually helped in the in the expansion of the frontier because it put pressures on it. But anyway, Dad, I so I did you read the stuff I sent you last night about the searchers? No, I didn't. Okay, all right. So just listen to this. Uh, I, you know, this is a nice Thanksgiving uh, uh, thing. I, again, I didn't know this that the um, that the Indians were that like were, were considered at one time to be that. I mean, I knew the Indians like tortured their captives and things like that. I didn't know that they were that uh, bad, right? Yeah. Um, this, let me find it. There was a thing here. Okay, yeah. This is a thing from uh, forttours.com. So the Comanche are the ones that you see in the searchers. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film, they do some nasty things. Um, they kill women and children. They scalp people. Uh, and it's hinted that they've done worse than that. But that's it. That's all, right? 
This is from forttours.com. Historical interest. Torture, mutilation, and brutality in Comanche history. And this is by a guy who has uh, a a degree in American history. Um, And he, uh, it's, this is from, the story is from a book, Comanches, The Destruction of a People, by T.R. Fehrenbach. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of this because it's so extreme that I, I, I you know, I, 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 I don't even want to like read it. It says the protracted rape, humiliation, and murder of female captives began on the homeward journey, leaving a bloody trail behind the war party. This began when the warriors believed they had put enough distance behind them for security and they could make a camp and light fires. There was no taboo against tormenting women, but this rarely went beyond sexual assault, although Indians were known to impale women on rough-cut stakes or cut their heel tendons and leave them in the wilderness. Cut their heel tendons and leave them in the wilderness. Uh, It says that um, more often than not, the captive female brought back to camp had more to fear from the jealousy of the Nermanu women who heaped abuse and physical punishment on them. If there were male prisoners, the normal practice was to try to bring them back for the pleasure of the women. When this was impractical, they were killed on the trail. Since bravery was the supreme virtue among Indians, torture was the supreme test. The tormentors got the same psychic satisfaction from breaking a victim's spirit while they destroyed his nerves and body as they derived from mutilating the dead. However, because valor was so respected in this war culture, the tortured captives who died bravely gained honor in the eyes of enemies, a nicety most European minds failed to grasp. The victim who was defiant to the last even won a sort of triumph. He made bad magic for his killers. Uh, There was one documented case of a nameless white man on the plains who laughed in the face of his Nermanu captors with complete coolness as they graphically threatened his genitals with fire and steel. Abash, the war chief, ordered him released unharmed as having a magic too powerful to challenge. But a Spanish recorded description of the mass torture of a number of captured Tonkawas is enough to show why the subject of torture was always close to the minds of whites on the Amerindian frontier. So this was a big issue for the whites on the frontier, the subject of torture. You don't want to get captured by these guys. Yeah. Uh, It says that in this case, the Nermernu warriors staked out their victims and began applying fire to each captive's hands and feet until the nerves had been destroyed in each extremity. Then they amputated the ruined extremities and began the fire torture again against the sensitive bleeding flesh. All of the victims were scalped alive so that they would know the full extent of their degradation. Finally, tiring of the business, the Nermanu tore out the Tonkawa's tongues to silence their cries and heaped the writhing victims' scrota and bellies on blazing coals. They then went to sleep around the torture fire. Even worse fates could befall warriors brought back alive to Nermanu encampments. Here, especially once the victim's screams established that his medicine was broken, the work was left to the women. Most observers reported the women were far more patient and vicious tormentors than the males. Um, it may have been the exercise of vengeance against their lot in life, but in, in, at any rate, the females destroyed the captive by the most drawn-out and hideous means they could devise. They cut off his fingers and peeled his eyes. They stretched his tongue and charred his souls. And they invariably devoted fiendish attention to his penis and testicles. The torture went on for hours, even days, so long as the body survived. Meanwhile, if the war party had come back with glory and with captives and booty without losses, the whole band erupted in frenzied celebration. 
so they were honoring themselves, blah, blah, blah. And it says the returned warriors danced themselves into exhaustion while their bloody trophies hung dying on the scalp poles. Um, and this is the definition of savage. Oh, yeah, it's total. But it's like, it's yeah, it's worse than. Oh, yeah, and this was another one. From the book Los Comanches, The Horse People, 1751 by 1845 by Stanley Noyes. Comanches put their the prisoner to work digging a hole, telling them they needed it for a religious ceremony. When the captive, using a knife in his hands, had completed digging a pit about five feet deep, they bound him with rope, placed him in it, filled the hole with dirt, packing it around his body and his exposed head. They then scalped him and cut off his ears, nose, lips, and eyelids. Leaving him bleeding, they rode away, counting on the sun and the insects to finish their work for them. Later at their encampment, they told the story as an excellent joke, one which gained them a certain celebrity throughout the tribe. So, I mean, this is, uh, and I found, you know, somebody in the comments uh, on this site writes, the nameless boy who defied the Comanche was real and his sister watched. And you can read it in a book called uh, Indian Deprivations in Texas. But... Uh, and this was published in 1889. Anyway, the point is, I didn't even know. I mean, I, I, I remember I, I, I did a thing about uh, the film Black Robe, you know, the movie Black Robe, which takes place in Canada about the Jesuits. Right. That got into it a little bit. You see how cruel these Indians were. But, I mean, this is this is another level. This is another level. So so they're Madison Grant. I mean, that was a, dis- a discovery I made the other night, that Madison Grant said that they were the most fiendish torturers, like, ever in all of history. The people that were the former occupants of this land. I, I think there was a, a lot of, uh, var- you know, variation from tribe to tribe. I mean, there were some places where uh, they had okay relations with Indians and, and other places. Like the Western Indians, the desert Indians were especially uh, rough, I think. Well, but the northern uh, but, ones. But the... But they, you know, uh, some places I, th- I think they they kind of kind of got along. And I remember uh, Willie Lemoore, who wrote all these Western novels, and he was like an expert on the Old West. He wrote novels, but he was uh, an expert on the history. And I remember sixty Minutes did an interview with him decades ago, and they were talking about the different things of the Old West, the the uh, myths versus reality. And one of the things he mentioned, he said, was. Uh, breaking treaties and he said if you if you study the 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 actual history he says that the treaties you know he always said the the white men broke the treaties he said the treaties were broken by the indians just about as much as you know the whites broke them and 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 often what would happen i mean what would happen would be sometimes uh you know a group of young indians would get drunk and they would just they would just act out and and they would go, you know, burn, rape and loot. Sven needs me to sign up for a paywall subscription at the right stuff dot biz slash paywall. Okay, Sven, I'm your number one guy. I'll do it. And then that, then the whites, you know, would go out for revenge and the whole, the whole, uh, piece would sort of fall apart. Uh, so that, you know, it, it was probably a lot of variation, but uh, yeah, I've always heard that that the, that something about the desert Indians uh, were especially bad. It's like like all the desert critters, you see, know, the rattlesnakes and thorns on cactuses, and it's it's, it's rough country. 
I just want to say, though, that the Iroquois were like every bit as bad. I mean, you read about the Iroquois, and that's what that movie Black Robe, because it's the snow Indians up in Canada. Yeah. And they're really, they're really horrible. I mean, they were really, really, really horrible. And, uh, you know, in around Pittsburgh, for instance, Western PA, I mean, I, I know there was terrible. There were massacres there, Pontiac's Rebellion. There was all kinds of stuff. But anyway, it's just interesting that this history has been completely that, – that, that Madison Grant could write Conquest of a Continent in uh, – when did he publish this? This was like in the 20s. Um, well, you can, you can find historic markers. There's one not too far from here where there was an Indian massacre about 25 miles from here. Uh, so they're they're all over this country, you know, but yeah. they don't talk about it anymore it's in the schools or, you know, it's they just want people to kind of forget that. Yeah, this was uh, Conquest of a Continent was written in 1933. And uh, his thing, you know, it's very Nordicist, but it starts out the introduction. The character of a country depends upon the racial character of the men and women who dominate it. Uh, and the, the introduction says, I welcome this volume as the first attempt to give an authentic racial history of our country based on the scientific interpret interpretation of race as distinguished from language and from geographic distribution. But I mean, a, a well-respected author and anthropologist and scientist like Madison Grant in, uh, who, who is studying the whole thing could make a statement like that, that like since the Assyrians, there haven't been a people as fiendishly like cruel as the American Indian, uh, that is quite a, that's quite a statement. And, um, they pretty much memory hold that whole thing. Yeah, well, I didn't even, I mean, did you, had you ever read anything that bad? I think I read, uh, Conquest of Continent, you, I mean, decades ago. Uh, but so the, the, the descriptions from that website. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. That's, that's worse than anything. I think it's worse than anything I've ever I've ever read um, as far as the the horrible stuff. So, so yeah, I I I think that's just something for people to think about and remember that uh, because even I think with our movement, sometimes there's a tendency to maybe romanticize things, but the actual way it was. What, what's interesting is they often do this. They often say, "Oh well, you know, for for a cowboy and Indian film, The Searchers is actually fairly nuanced." Unlike the, well, unlike what? This is what I want to know. Unlike what? When did Hollywood ever actually show the Indians the way they really were? Yeah. I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I mean, I, I can't recall. I mean, we haven't watched that many Westerns. I haven't seen that many Westerns, but I've seen a good deal. I mean, I'm an old film buff, and I know you grew up on them. But, I mean, we, you know, we went through a thing there where we were watching old episodes of Gunsmoke. And more often than not, even in the very early seasons, in the 50s, the gun, the, the Indians are portrayed sympathetically, or at least like they're danger, they're, they're a danger out there in the woods, like well, the way that, bears that, are mounted. That was, as a kid growing up, all the westerns, yeah, in the, in the, uh, late fifties, early, in the sixties, the, the Indians were always, uh, you know, it would vary. There'd, there'd, be, there'd be battles and stuff like that, but they never really got into like, uh, torture and they hinted at, I mean, they talked about scalping sometimes and all, but, more often than not, there was a very sympathetic Indian character, you know, Gunsmoke or uh, Bonanza, all, all those old Western. The evil, the really evil bad guys in all the stuff I've watched were always whites. Like you wouldn't oh, have yeah. like a really evil Indian character, like a like the you know the the equivalent of the uh, 
the the Ralph Fiennes character in Schindler's List, you know, the the right, the, right, the right, concentration right. camp guard. So like he's like he's like a really evil German Nazi. Like even among German Nazis, the way they portray them, he's like a particularly bad one. You never see them show. That's why I say Black Rope is one of the few movies where it's you know, and it's not most of the Indian characters in the film are sympathetic, but they show the because it's they're dealing with the uh, uh, what do you call Algonquin. it? Uh, not the Algonquin. I, I forget. Um, but they're not the Iroquois. They're being conquered by the Iroquois, the other, the other people. Um, but that, that is, uh, uh, yeah, that's, like I said, that's, a, that's another level. So I thought that was interesting as well. Um, and it's something that it does seem like there's a history there that, that I, I'm, I'm not even aware of. And of course, they'll probably say it's all propaganda now. They say these are atrocity stories that aren't real and everything else. But, um, I got reading further into, um, the description of uh, the real life story that the searchers is based on and some white captive girls. And uh, they gave a full account back in the day. And um, I mean, again, they were doing this to each other. Well, the stuff's around. I mean, you could, there's old books. It's hard to find, but you can find it. And there's like, it's another place close to here. Kate's mountain. Uh, that, that, uh, was a woman that, that uh, I think her family was massacred or something. And she, she got off in the wilderness there and, uh, was hiding down on this mountain. So there's all over this country, there's stuff related to this. If you, you know, if, if you look around in your own area, you can probably find some kind of, uh, history of, 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 uh, battles with Indians or people that were massacred and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a weird thing because it's like the history of this country. Uh, I also was saying to Emily, cause she made a joke about, about the, uh, the Texans in, um, in the searchers. And she said, Oh, they're settlers. She said, they're like the Israelis. And I told her what, uh, what our friend Jerry used to call them squatters, you know, the Israeli squatters. He would never use the term settlers, but, it is funny how they use that term settlers because it, it 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 is a deliberate propaganda device to invoke the old west oh, yeah. and these like nordic you know settlers on the plains like with their churches and their Conjure schools kinship yeah and then, yeah. and then you have these like savage indians out there on the frontier trying to scalp people and cut off their balls and cut off their fingers and they're just complete barbarians and 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 that's what they're trying to portray uh the 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 Palestinians like that i mean i saw a um, i saw a, a description of someone who had been there it was kim iverson actually and said how in uh, the one town there were like 10 israeli settlers like moved right into the middle of town and a thousand idf soldiers came to protect them and i thought you know this would be like the equivalent of of like you know, you have your Indian reservation where the teepees are, and then you have 10 white settlers come in and plant themselves in the main teepee right in the middle of the village. And then you have the thousand soldiers come there day to day to just guard the 10, the 10 people. You know, it's, it's, it's not, I mean. Well, the other, the other interesting thing in the searchers is that they're the character Fetterman. Uh, oh, yeah, there's an anti Semitic bit in the searchers. Uh, everybody should check this out. So there's a, there's a trader. It's funny about department stores. Yeah. yeah there's a trader, tr- trader with a D, not traitor. 
uh, a trader. He has a trading post, and he's and it's his name is Jerem Futterman. Futterman, yeah. And he's played by a Greek actor. I looked up the guy's name, but he clearly they cast this guy because he looks like a Jew. He's very swarthy, and I don't know if he has a prosthetic nose or if that's his actual nose. But John Ford at one point films him from the side. And he's got this huge hook nose, Jew nose, and his swarthy dark hair in it. And he's real greedy. Uh, and they're, they're, they're trying to find out about their lost niece who was, who was taken by Indians. And he's, he's like, wants the reward money. And then, but then when, uh, when they, they haven't gotten her yet. So he's, John Wayne's like, well, you know, you'll get it if we catch her. He's like, well, you know, what about this? When I sent you that letter, that cost me money and this and this and that. And he gives him some money. He's like, a man's time is worth something. And then he gives him more. Yeah, and then that guy, real... yeah. And then, and then without giving it away, the Jew then tries to stab them in the back and double cross yeah, them in yeah. order to rob them and take their money. But it's a very funny, uh, little like anti-Semitic moment thrown into this classic. Well, well, you know, this thing about calling the Israeli settlers and trying to make like a link there. The, the same, guy that told me about Roosevelt moving Thanksgiving, he also, he was like in, in, in school, uh, at the beginning of in high school, at the beginning of the second world war. And, and, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but he told me they had to read a book in school and it was about some out West somewhere and how this Jewish and in the book, I think it was written by a Jew, if I remember him saying, this this Jewish ped, peddler comes to this western town, and he's real cultured. I think he's like musical, and he's very cultured and civilized, and he's a peddler. And all these crude, rough, Anglo-Saxon, you know, guys with like leather chaps and spurs and carrying six guns, they're like they're picking on this Jew and and like dance and shooting at his feet and and all this stuff, and it was all you know, highlighting the, the, this cultured Jewish peddler versus these crude cowboys, and he had to write a report on that. And of course, he was listening to Father Coughlin, and I think he was getting Joel K. Smith stuff, and so he wrote this report that you know that this guy comes into town. After these rough cowboys settled the land, you know, fought the Indians, built the town, everything. Then this guy shows up peddling his needles and pins and cloth and stuff. And he's looking down his nose at these guys, you know. So, but, but I mean, yeah, yeah, you see these threads with this stuff, uh, reappearing. Oh, and you can see how Jews, how they spread. I mean, they, like the department stores. I mean, it's very accurate. Like the guy that's got the trading post. In the old West, this is right after the Civil War, is a Jew. And he looks rough. He looks like a rough guy because he's out in the frontier, but he would be like a rough Jew. Well, there, there, there's a, somewhere a General Grant uh, during the Civil War where he uh, probably searched uh, General Grant anti-Semitic, uh, you know, act or, or orders or something. But he had all these, uh, su- su- what do they call them, sutlers? Uh, these guys that would follow around selling, you know, they'd be peddling stuff to the soldiers. They'd follow the, the camps around and they were all Jews and they were, they were, they were causing problems. They were cheating people and shit. For some reason he like drove, he drove them all out away from the camp. He forbid them 
something like something like that. You can look it up. Uh, General Grant uh, confrontation with Jewish settlers or something. Right. But but you know this. Yeah, it's the same pattern over and over. Well, the other thing, the other thing, just real quick, uh, Thanksgiving related, and then we'll get into the news, especially the stuff coming out of Ireland and some other things. Um, but one other uh, note that Thanksgiving that I came across when, um, and I know you sent this to me. I came across this when I was writing the um, the forward to uh, a new nobility of blood and soil for Antelope Hill. Uh, the 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 uh, regard Walter Dare. Um, book and it was the uh the nazi thanksgiving uh, that they specifically developed and it was called the reich harvest thanksgiving festival uh a monumental nazi german celebration of the peasantry and of the german farmers the festivals ran from 1933 to 1937 on the bukeberg a hill near the town of hamelin most of the festivals occurred every October, with the 1934 festival commencing the 30th of September. The official purpose of the festival was the recognition of the achievements of the German farmers uh, in the Reich's food estate. The celebration was also used by the Nazis as a propaganda tool to showcase the connection between Adolf Hitler and the German people. The festival was part of a cycle of Nazi celebrations, which included the annual party rally at Nuremberg, Hitler's birthday celebrations, and other important events on the Nazi calendar. This was the interesting thing about this because I didn't even know about this, but when I came across it, uh, when I was writing it forward, in 1937, the festival was attended by about 1.2 million people, culminating with Hitler walking through the Führerweg, Führer's Way, to the Harvest Monument in the form of an altar to receive the harvest crown from the farmer's estate on behalf of the German people. The festival was attended by more people than any other Nazi ceremony or ritual activity including the party rally at Nuremberg. I mean, 1.2 million people is, that's, that's a huge, huge thing. Um, it says that uh, um, in 1933, during his inaugural speech at the festival, Hitler announced the passage of a new law, uh, the Reichsserbhofgesetz, the state hereditary farm law, which provided safeguards for the integrity of ownership of some family farms. Mm-hmm. And that's that whole thing is... Um, if you're hearing this, then you're only getting half the show. Did you know that the right stuff.biz is 100% listener funded? Thanks to this censorship machine, this project can only be sustained by listeners like you, by supporters like you. So why don't you get behind the paywall at the right stuff.biz slash paywall and show the powers that be that they can't silence the most silenced. I got into it in that book and, and Dare, uh, in the foreword, Dare, uh, in the main book, he outlines, uh, the plans for that. But uh, and it was really the, it says the ideological underpinnings of the Reich Harvest Thanksgiving Festival were provided by his ideas of blood and soil, um, where he viewed the 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 farmer as playing an important role. And um, yeah, you have you have to think about the importance of these harvest festivals uh, in times past. You know, before you had modern equipment, modern fertilizers, you know, pesticides, herbicides, and these like perfect crops. I mean, when you're out there with like horses or oxen or mules, uh, and when it, when harvest time came, if a, if a little village town, if you didn't have a bountiful year, I mean, it literally could mean like starvation, you know, in times past. I mean, there was no going to Walmart, you know. Right, right, right. 
so, so, you know, the meaning that these things had, uh, if you go back, is it, it, it's uh, easy to understand. Yeah, and and uh, the location of it is in Lower Saxony. It says uh, a place where there was high Nazi support. Well, it's funny because there's high Nazi support in Lower Saxony right now. Um, the Nazis made frequent mentions of the historic struggles of the Germanic tribes which had settled the area. Um, anyway, uh, I know that um, it says as part of the celebrations, choirs consisting of thousands of singers sang nationalist anthems while pictures of distinguished farmers were distributed to the crowds. The most anticipated moment of the celebration was the arrival of the Fuhrer at noon, followed by Hitler walking the Fuhrerweg, Fuhrer's way towards the monument where a peasant woman at the altar awarded him the harvest crown. The 600-meter procession took Hitler 45 minutes to complete due to frequent stops to meet and greet the crowd. So it was a long walk. He's walking the whole way. Um, it says that, uh, you know, they canceled it with when the, when the war came on. But uh, but this is like a completely memory hold. Also, another one of these memory hold things. This was the largest uh, Nazi celebration. Um, it says that in modern times, the site appears to be just a green area with trees with little evidence of its Nazi past. However, upon closer inspection, architectural elements of its past can be discerned. Chief among them, the Führerweg, which now appears as a long line of grass clearly visible on the hillside. There are also other remnants such as a rostrum ruins and other infrastructure. The site was one of the most important celebrations of the Reich, and within it the Führerweg, an elevated paved corridor 600 meters long and 5 meters wide, was at the center of the festivities. Um, given the significance to the site of the site to Nazi history and the large numbers of people who gathered in the area during the festivities, the historical importance of the grounds is not in doubt. However, it has not been declared a historic site, and its preservation as a historic place has been a difficult problem for modern German authorities. This is partly due to the fears that if the location is declared historical, it would become a pilgrimage site for neo-Nazis. Another reason frequently raised by locals is the refusal of local people to be associated with a celebration closely tied to the Nazis. Um, graffiti appeared on the grounds in 2008 saying, no commemoration of the perpetrators, commemorate the victims. I do know that uh, Richard Walter Dare is buried there. Um, he is in. He's buried in that town. Um, some of the stuff they added actually on Wikipedia since I uh, since I I, um, I wrote that forward. Uh, I guess that was two years ago. But yeah, so the, the Nazis had their own Thanksgiving and a similar time of year, uh, and. Um, yeah, very different from like the need to move up the. So, isn't it interesting that we have the two things right in the same time period, nineteen thirty, literally nineteen thirty three. Yeah. So in nineteen thirty three, we have the two guys get elected. They both become get into office. FDR over here, Hitler over there, and both institute big changes to do with Thanksgiving in uh, Germany. They declare this Reich Harvest Festival, this bond between land and people, blood and soil, honoring the farmers, honoring the Reich food estate. Protecting hereditary farms. Yeah, protecting hereditary farms. That's what Hitler signs a law, protecting hereditary family farms. And then in, in, in the United States. The good old U.S. of A. Yeah, uh, Franksgiving is declared where FDR, because of Jewish department store owners, 
moves Thanksgiving up on the calendar date so that the shopping season will be will be greater. You know, the funny thing is they cast it in the I mean, in the change. If it, it was the original thing was by Abraham Lincoln, right? And you know, from the from the the president's point of view at the time, you think, well, he's the guy that preserved the union, right? Right. You think there'd be a little respect for that, <laughs> at least from that quarter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. What's 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 so funny is that uh, the way they make it seem like well FDR was just doing this to boost sales during the depression. He was just thinking of the country and of the economy during the depression. Well, guess what? So was Hitler when he declared his hereditary farm law, and you know Hitler solved unemployment. This is the point I always make to people. Again, I've made this a million times. I'll keep continue to make it. Hitler solved unemployment and solved the depression in peacetime. And his economy was destroyed in wartime. FDR, exactly the opposite. With all, with his Jewish brain trust and all his bullshit and, you know, the media and everything on his side, the depression was getting worse. By 1938, it was actually getting worse. It was dipping down. And that's the thing. There's, a, there's two periods where sometime we'll do a real deep dive on the depression, but there was an early part to the depression where things started to get a little better. And then in this country, it started to get worse. So that by the time the war started, the depression was actually getting worse because of the pseudo-socialism, as I think Hitler called it. I can never find that quote, but I think he called it a pseudo-socialism, the New Deal, which again, always really at the end of the day, FDR for all his anti-capitalist bluster was at the end of the day, a capitalist himself, favoring the capitalists. And he is even on record of saying that his goal was to save capitalism. That's what he was trying to do with the New Deal. So Roosevelt signed the solved the economic problems of this country through a war that he helped start. He helped engineer it. You can read uh, Mark Weber's article on that uh, Roosevelt's campaign in Europe to start to start war in Europe. His the, the Polish documents. So FDR helped engineer an international crisis to lift his country out of the Great Depression because he couldn't solve it in peacetime. Hitler, on the other hand, the big warmonger, the warlord, solved his country's problems in peacetime and was only destroyed by war. I think it was the Socialist Labor Party at the time. So that's what cap- the capitalists do is uh, when there's a depression like that, you, you know, you start a war. It stimulates economy and you kill off the unemployed. Right, right. And that's, that's literally what he did. But... Uh, yeah, I think that's uh I think that's a fascinating contrast between the two the two Thanksgivings, the Nazi Thanksgiving and the American Jewish Thanksgiving acts on nineteen thirty-three. Um we're not quite to a full hour here, guys, but I think that's a natural pausing point. We will stop it there and when we when we pick it up on the other side, subscribe to rightstuff.biz if you haven't. Uh, or you can also get a TRS subscription through the National Justice Party. If you support the National Justice Party, you'll get a TRS subscription through it, um, nationaljusticeparty.com. And uh, on the other side, we're going to pick it up with uh, the big stuff out of Ireland and also some some news about the economy and a few other things, uh, ceasefire in Gaza. We may get a chance to talk about that. But the big news out of Ireland and also the uh, some stuff with the economy. 